Well, good morning on this nice, chilly day. Yeah, kind of exciting. Makes you uh, really appreciate the nice, warm day that we had the day before, right? Then all of a sudden, I mean, what was it, almost 70 yesterday? I mean, you don't like the weather in Texas, right? Just wait a minute, and it will change. And who knows, uh, maybe we'll get that precept, maybe we won't. And, uh, and so what a, what a blessing from God. It's a day that the Lord has made. Just like the day before, this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. That's a statement of faith, right? Because we don't know what the day holds. Well, let's look together at God's word. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and following. Uh, and I, I want us to, to think about this as we get into this passage. Uh, I got a, I've got an illustration that I want to start with. Uh, you remember Helen Keller. Some of you have studied about her blind and deaf. I can't even imagine the isolation that a person must feel if you're both blind and deaf. No input from those two directions. And yet she had a lady named Ann Sullivan who came along and took an interest in her and didn't just do things the way that everybody else had done them. She started that way, realized that wasn't going to work. And she began to change her strategy, so much so that Helen Keller became the first blind and deaf person to ever receive a Bachelor of Arts degree. Amazing. Even more so was when I realized that she also taught her French, German, Greek, and Latin. Yeah, blind and deaf, and she learned all of those things. Wow. She made this statement, although the world is full of suffering... It is also full of the overcoming of it. Think about those words. From whom they came. Helen Keller. Although the world is full of suffering, and it is, it is also full of the overcoming of it. And that inspires us, doesn't it? When we read the stories of those who have overcome suffering, it incredibly inspires us. It causes us to go, if they can do it in their condition and in their circumstances, I can do this. It's very much necessary for us to see the examples of those who have gone before. I remember when I was in... Um, uh, uh, Tanzania a couple of years ago there was a man who was missing an ear and on one devotion he took one, uh, the morning devotion that day and he shared about his stomach cancer and he shared about his struggle at first and how now he was at peace about it and the reason he was in Tanzania was because he wanted to share maybe his last mission trip with his son Touched me to no end. For a man using what time he has left, it was inspirational to me. Those kinds of stories, as I hear them, they're not just nice stories that you read in a book. They help us when we go through suffering. And I think that's important to understand because when I was first started looking at this passage, and it's talking about elders... So I exhort the elders among you 
everybody goes, oh, I'm not an elder, and you check out, right? And so I thought, man, Sunday morning, I'm going to have everybody checking out, except the few elders that are in the room, right? And I was thinking, why does Peter do this? He spent the whole book up to this point, first four chapters, talking about suffering. And then all of a sudden, he talks to elders. Is this a parenthesis in the letter? Is it kind of a tack on? It was, it was it originally a, a separate letter? Oh, oh, by the way, I'm writing to the elders now. Why does he write to elders in the midst of everything else he's spoken to the general uh, readers of his letter? Why now does he talk about this? I don't think he's talking about just, oh, okay, let's talk about the way the church is supposed to be set up and how uh, the organization of the church and the leaders of the church and, and gets into some theological doctrinal thing here. I think it's, he's continuing his idea, his thought. He's talking about suffering. And his, he's, he's now talking about here's how leaders play a role in your suffering. I think that's what he's talking about. He says, so, that word so can also be, and some of your translations will say, therefore, therefore, based on what? Based on the sufferings, the verse right before, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing what is good. Therefore, elders, I exhort the elders... And that word exhort is the same word that's used of the uh, Holy Spirit, by the way, paraclete. I exhort, like I comfort the elders. I, you know, he's, he's speaking to the elders. He says, I exhort you as a fellow elder. All of a sudden, he brings himself into the picture. Peter says, I'm in this with you. I'm in this same boat with you. Now, when you look at the structure of the church, I mean, or the structure of this passage, you have to ask yourself the question, is he talking about just older people in the church? Is that who he's talking to? Or is he talking to people who occupy an office of elder? And, and, and at first you say, well, in, in verse 5, he says, likewise, you are younger, be subject to the elders. So is he just saying, okay, younger people, you just respond to the older people, and older people, you need to uh, do these things to shepherd the flock. Or is he saying there's a group of people called elders? Well, we see Tim, uh, Paul talking to Timothy about that, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. An office of elder, those who aspire to the office of being an, an elder, that, uh, that of overseer. And so he's, he, here you look back at this passage and you say, okay, he's not just talking to the older people here. The word that uh, is used for elder is a, uh, the name of a denomination, it's Presbyterian. And so the, it's the word presbuteros, and that word refers to uh, those who are older, but it also refers to the office of elder. And we know that he's talking to those who are leading the church because he says later uh, in, uh, he says, shepherd the flock of God, but then he also says, exercising oversight. Now that word oversight it's the word that we, it's another denomination, Episcopalian. So, and that word, it refers to this oversight, or it's sometimes translated bishop. 
oversight or bishop, somebody who, who cares for other people, who takes the responsibility to care for other people, that's the, what that word means on, in terms of oversight. And it uses that word interchangeably with the term elder. It's one of the reasons why I don't hold to bishops, but I hold to elders being the uh, highest authority in a church. It's because I think those two terms are interchangeable in this passage and also in Titus chapter 1. And so you, you, you think about how the church is set up. I think it's important for us to, to kind of think this through because you come from many different backgrounds, many different understandings of how churches should be structured. If you come from a, a, a church situation where the, they camp on, the, on the, the Presbyterian word, well, the, the groups of people that, that hold to that are, uh, would be uh, uh, Presbyterian, Reformed, Baptist, some Baptist churches, uh, some Anglican churches, Anabaptist, Church of Christ, and there are a number of different ones that would hold to elders being the highest authority. There are those that hold to bishops and they would, they would camp on the, the, the Episcopal word. That would be more the Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox. Um, you have Anglican, Episcopal, Lutheran, uh, Methodist. You have some that hold no pastor or no priest. Because they would say, you look at 1 Peter chapter 2, where he talks about that we're believer priests. That all believers are priests. That you all are priests. And I would hold that, that you all are priests. But as a result, they don't have any pastor or priest. Those would be the brethren uh, or Quakers or Mennonites, uh, a church uh, of Christ, some of them. Uh, you have uh, house churches, some Anabaptists, Amish. Uh, some would hold to a pope. Where did a pope come from? A kind of a greater among equals and bishops. Because it, once it was the bishop of Rome and, and then all of a sudden it became more important than all the other bishops. And so it was just a greater among equals. And then it kind of developed into an office of its own. And it's not just the Catholic Church, by the way, that has popes. Uh, you have them in other Orthodox uh, denominations. You have them in, in the Oriental Orthodox. Uh, you have them in uh, the Coptic churches and some others where there's other actual popes. Uh, and so um, when you look at this, you have to ask the question, is why, uh, which one is right? Which one is biblically New Testament structure of the church? Well, I would say, and my thought is, and my, as I study, it's, you have two offices, elders and deacons. Notice I didn't say pastors and I didn't say staff. Okay, so we have some things that aren't necessarily New Testament. We have staff. Was that, how does that fit? I had a professor once who said, you know, when you look at, and it's a topic of study of ecclesiology, when you look at ecclesiology, the study of the church, uh, you have, uh, 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 in Scripture, it seems like there's more openness in ecclesiology than any other area of theology. And he says, why is that? And he says, well, because, in his mind, he said, because when you go to every different culture all around the world, the church always is able to adapt and fit. And I thought, huh, that's interesting. And I think when I, when I look at that, so it, would it be a problem to have a bishop? No, you want to have a bishop, have a bishop. We have staff, right? It's not New Testament in there either. But I think the key thing is, is that, that elders are very much a, a big part of what church is all about. And I think the highest authority in a particular local church are the elders of the church. You see the elder idea carried over even from the Old Testament, from the Sanhedrin and, and from... Um, 
uh, from the uh, even cities, the elders would sit in the gate. And so you have the elders in the gate, and these were the people that were the leaders of a particular city. And so that idea carried over into New Testament idea and, uh, and, and is, is now the, the leadership of the church. Do you have priests? Yeah, you have priests carrying over that all, every one of you, according to 1 Peter 2, are priests, believer priests. And so the idea of priest, not a special priest, not a person set apart, but all of us as priests of our God. And so whenever on a Sunday morning, you're exercising your uh, right as a priest and your authority as a priest to worship God along with the worship team that's here, that we are all worshiping him. And I mean, it's amazing when you look at all of this, but you, you come back to this and you have Peter saying, I want the, my fellow elders. Here's what I want from them. I want them, and, 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 he, and, he, and then he starts qualifying himself, fellow elder, witness of the sufferings of Christ, and partaker of the glories that can be revealed. Why does he... Why does he need to give his credentials? That he's a fellow elder. In fact, you think, when did he become an elder? I know he's an apostle. When did he become an elder? You don't have a particular point where you can say he started being an elder at this point. Probably in the church in Jerusalem. Uh, sometime around Acts 15 or before is my guess. But it's just a guess. I don't know for sure. He's a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Why does he bring that up? Because his whole concept leading up to this is the suffering that we go through, the suffering that believers go through. And he had just talked about in, in verse 13 about sharing in Christ's sufferings. And now he says, a witness of those sufferings. We're sharing in Christ's sufferings. I, I, I was a witness of those sufferings, the sufferings of Christ that he died for you and died in your place. It's one of the reasons why he was an apostle, because he was one of the witnesses of those things. That was one of the criteria that they used in Acts chapter 1 when they were trying to decide how do we get a new apostle to take the place of the one that's, that's gone away, Judas. And he says as well, as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. And he's still giving his credential. I'm, I'm going to be a partaker in that. And what he didn't say is so are you. So are you, you that are believers in Jesus Christ. So are the, the elders, the, those who are... Uh, leading, and then he says, shepherd the flock of God. There's two places where he uses this term, the flock of God, or this phrase, the flock of God. One is shepherd, the other is in verse 3, uh, being examples to the flock. And as I was looking at what, what is the role here of elders in suffering, I think it's those two things. Shepherding the flock and being examples to the flock. That we do those two aspects. That those two aspects are something that we all need when we're going through suffering. We need somebody to help lead us through suffering, shepherding. And we need somebody who is an example. And you think, wait a minute, is, is this, I mean, be, be an example in just any old thing? Just be an example to the flock? Because what's the context? The context is suffering. I think it's being an example of how to handle suffering when you're in the, uh, among the flock and being an inspiration and encouragement to those who are going through suffering. And when they look at your life, they go, if they can go through it, I can go through it. If Helen Keller could go through it without being uh, blind and deaf, 
I can, I can do this. I can get through this. Mine's not nearly as bad or nearly as difficult as what they're facing. When you see that, when you realize that, it causes you to be inspired by God. God wants us to know when we're going through suffering that we have people that care for us, that take the responsibility to care for us, oversight. They, they're willing to take that responsibility. And when you think about that, when we have kids and we, and we want to get away for an evening, we ask somebody to take care of them and they exercise oversight. They're willing to take the responsibility of the care of our kids. And that's the, the role of elders here. And when I think about that, he's not just, the reason that he's not just speaking to the elders, but to the whole congregation is, yes, so goes the elders leading and shepherding and examples. He wants all of us to be doing that. He wants all of us to be those who care for and take responsibility to care for one another. He wants all of us to be those who are examples to one another about somebody who can live a life of faith, who can have the peace that passes understanding, that can rejoice in their sufferings. He wants us all to be that, not just the elders. But the elders should be an example in that. They should lead the way in that. They should take those steps themselves as well. And the reason that he wants it among the leadership is he wants that to, to filter down to the whole congregation. He wants us all to be a caring congregation, to share one another's sufferings, to be there for each other when we're struggling. And so he addresses the elders in kind of an open letter, an open letter to the congregation that he, he continues on. He's, he's not speaking in parentheses. He's not just saying, okay, the rest of you can go to sleep now. I'm just talking to the elders, and so it doesn't apply to you. No, it's, he wants them to hear this too. When you're going through suffering, you're not alone. You've got the elders of the church shepherding you, being examples for you. You have the shepherd who is leading the flock, all of us, the shepherds, because he knows it's elders plural, not singular, the elders shepherding you through your pain, shepherding you, leading you through the difficulties. That idea of a shepherd, when you think about a shepherd, sometimes a shepherd has to lead you through the darkest valleys. When, a, when, when sheep are, are eating on, on one plane and they, he wants to take them to another one because this field is played out and he wants to take them to another grassy area, he's got to go down into the valley where the water is, by the way. And so he waters the flock and then he takes them back up to that next place. And what is in that dark valley? Not just the water, but also the wild animals who are also feeding and drinking at that same watering hole. So he has to take them through the dark valleys and back up to the next place. Our God does that for us. He does that with us, doesn't he? Psalm 23 tells us he does that. The good shepherd, right? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. That valley of the shadow we live in, that valley of the shadow are those dark times in our life, those times where the shadows are now playing in the trees and we're looking and we're, we don't know and we're uncertain and we're scared and we don't know what's going to come next. And we find ourselves a little bit disconcerted. We find ourselves struggling in those moments. 
and the good shepherd leads us. And God says, I've, I've, I'm not just, it's not just me. I've got leaders in the church that I want them to do the same thing. I want to exhort them to do that same thing. That when you're going through the dark valley, they help lead you through that. And the way that they help lead you through that is they, get, they marshal the forces and, and, and together we say, hey, how can we all help? How can we all get involved in that person's life so that person doesn't feel alone, doesn't feel uncared for, that they're fed, that they're taken care of, that they're led, that they're guided? Because that's what shepherds do. Shepherds make sure the, feed eat, uh, the, the, the herd eats, right? That the sheep eat. The shepherd makes sure that they're protected from the wild animals. We see that from David. How he talks to Saul and he says, hey, I, I killed the lion and the bear. And, and then he looks at that Philistine and says, you know, this guy's going down. Because he's defied, not me, he's not defied you. He's defied the armies of the living God. I mean, he had perspective. He had focus that it's God that's doing this. And so... As leaders, we have to lead people out of their suffering. Or not out of, probably through. Sometimes you can't lead somebody out of suffering. As much as you would like to, you'd like to take the suffering away from them. You'd like to make it where it doesn't happen, where it's not there. But we, we don't have that choice. We don't have that option. But we can be with them in the midst of suffering and help lead them through it where they have a peace that passes understanding. I got to understand that a little bit more in my own personal journey whenever I found out I had cancer last year and, and then uh, I went through the, the whole process of just trusting the Lord for it. And it's like, it was a whole new understanding of all of that that I didn't understand before. And when that, when that guy from Tanzania that had stomach cancer shared his testimony about how, how he was at peace and he had kind of gone through this time of questioning God and yet then he had come to this point of peace, it stirred my heart. And I remembered his story because it was after that that I got my diagnosis. Why did God have me run into that guy? Why did he have me spend a week with that guy in Tanzania at an orphanage? It wasn't a coincidence because I saw the peace that he had and whenever I was facing my own diagnosis, I went, same God that helped him can help me. And so it changed me. It impacted me. It impacted my life, that guy's life. And then when I went to Pakistan and I shared with a piece that passes understanding, just my diagnosis and where I was at. And, and then the guy that I was with said, you have no idea how powerful that was. And I go in and say, hey, here's what's going on in my life, and yet I'm trusting the Lord. He says, you have no idea how powerful that was. And I thank God that I ran into this guy before I got my diagnosis. And that guy now is with the Lord. And I just think, God, thank you for him. Thank you for bringing him into my life. I needed that. We need those kind of examples. God used it to shepherd me, to feed me, to guide me, to lead me. In fact, when I 
uh, years ago, we did a study on, on, on leaders of the church, and we looked at elders very closely. And, and I remember as we were coming up with what are the roles of an elder versus the roles of a deacon or whatever, and, and uh, somebody said, well, you know, in this one church that they are part of, they had six words, lead, feed, guard, guide, oversee, and pray. And it just stuck with me. Lead, feed, guard, guide, oversee, and pray. In fact, all of those are in this passage except for pray. And I'm sure you'd find prayer if you look later in the passage. God wants us to know, he wants all of us to know, that he's brought people into our lives at the point of our suffering who he wants to shepherd us. And then he also wants them to be an example to us as well. Because you see, there's two phrases, the flock of God. One is in the very second one, shepherd the flock of God. But then in verse 3, be examples to the flock. And when I was looking at this passage and I was trying to figure out, okay, what is he asking elders to do? Two things. Shepherd and be an example. How is that going to help the church family? Because that's who he's writing to. That you know that there are people around to help lead you through, guide you, feed you through this moment, through these difficult seasons of life. Who are also going through suffering and being examples of how to do it. How to trust the Lord when they're going through suffering. And I feel like that my suffering is minor compared to what I've seen in some other people's lives. And so I'm just an example of one kind of here's how I dealt with it. But at the same time, it's all of us together, trusting the Lord together, that when God leads us through the valley, he's going to be with us. And here's how to trust him in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the dark valley, in the midst of that time that we need him, that we need one another. God does not intend for you to go through your suffering alone. I don't know how many times that I found out about somebody suffering after the fact because they didn't let anybody know. They just kind of decided, I just need to suck this up and do it on my own. That's not what the body of Christ is for, for you to do it on your own and be silent and be like Helen Keller, blind and deaf and completely isolated and apart from the world. He intends for us to be the Ann Sullivans that come along and say, no, I'm going to help you out of your darkness. I'm going to help you to be able to see where you can't see. I'm going to help you be able to understand where you can't understand. I'm going to help you to be able to, to, to begin to, to read when you can't even see or hear the words. I'm going to teach you the language of suffering. I'm going to teach you the, I mean, God is doing that for us. He wants us to be together in this. He wants us to struggle together. He wants us to be there for each other. And I hate it when I can't be there for someone. And I know when there's a lot of us, it's hard to be there for everyone. But I do know that God has designed uh, the, the flock in such a way that we're all together in this. That we're all serving one another in regard to suffering. But it also means that when it says being examples to the flock, that he's, Peter is saying, you know what? As elders, you're going to go through suffering too. 
How are you going to handle it when you go through suffering? And how you handle it is going to be an example to the flock. And the very person who wrote this, Peter, went through great suffering. Suffering and watching his Lord die, watching Jesus die. I can't imagine how much suffering that would be. Can you imagine knowing he's the Messiah and seeing him die? All the struggles that you would go through, especially that first weekend going, everything I believed, everything that I followed is now in the trash. And then, and then, and then he rose from the grave. Wow. And you have the opportunity to be able to grow through that. He was imprisoned because of his faith. Paul, beaten for his faith, you begin to realize that all the people who wrote these New Testament books went through suffering. They understood suffering. They understand what it's like. I love the, uh, uh, the uh, Voice of the Martyrs app that every day pops something else up. Here's another martyr. Here's another struggle that somebody's going through in, 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 in this world because of their faith. And you realize this is the most persecuted uh, age in the history of the world, that there are more people being persecuted today than all the other centuries combined for their faith in Jesus. You kind of go, whoa. There's a lot of persecution going on. And when I read their stories, they're not just, oh, this is another nice story. It touches the very core of your being when you read those. And it inspires you. Think, and in fact, sometimes I think, God, I, I hope that if I ever face this, I could be like them. Lord, help me not to be one who, who fails this test. Help me to be someone who always says yes to you, speaks up for you, that doesn't deny you in those, those very key moments. As he's talking to these elders, he says, I don't want you to be doing this under compulsion. I don't want you to feel like you have to do it. Well, nobody else is doing it, so I guess I have to do it. Have you ever said that? But willingly, as God would have you, not as you would have you, as God would have you. Nor for shameful gain. Doesn't mean that elders can't be paid. We see in 1 Timothy 5.18 where uh, elders are, uh, are, are paid. So it doesn't mean they can't be paid, but that's not their reason. They would do it for free if they could. In some cases, they do do it for free. We have five elders in our church and two of us get paid, three do not. And I don't get paid for being an elder. I get paid because I'm on, on staff as, a, as a, now the founding pastor at Mansfield Bible. But, when you, when you, but I would do it for free. I, I love what I do. I love uh, 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 serving God and doing what he asked me to do. A lot of guys at my age are retiring, right? And I'm just kind of ramping up for the next thing. And I think, I must be crazy. Why am I doing this? It's because I just love people. I love you. I love what God is doing, what he's doing here. I love what God is doing around the world, and I want to be a part of it as long as I can. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And there's still an eagerness in my heart. I don't know why it's still there. I've seen so many of my friends that get involved in ministry, and they get completely burned out. They're done. They're ready to throw in the towel. 
I still remember when, when Tim Keller stepped down from Redeemer, and, and I know that he wasn't just doing it for, you know, for frivolous reasons. He continued doing ministry, but he made this comment that just stuck with me. He said, you know, 25 years in ministry takes its toll. Ministry does take a toll. It, it beats you up. It challenges everything in the core of your being, who you are, who you thought you were. You, over, over time, you get criticized for just about everything about you. <laughs> and there's a lot to criticize, I can tell you. You know, you hit the mark on so many cases. It's like, yeah, I know, I'm human. And yet, so many people, they get to a point and they're like, I can't do this anymore. Why am I not there? I don't know. I'm not any better than anybody else. But I just know that I'm still eager to do what God asked me to do. I didn't step down from the lead position because I no longer wanted to be a part of it. I did just because I thought that was what God wanted next. And I'm looking forward to what the next chapter holds for my life and what that looks like as I step forward and I walk by faith in him. But there's still an eagerness about me. And the only thing that I can think of is, is that I remember years ago a guy saying, you know, when you're doing and serving and ministering and you get burned out, you've got to stop and ask yourself, why am I doing this? Because probably if you're burned out, you forgot why you were doing it. And when you begin to remember, I'm doing this for the Lord, it changes you. It makes you different. It, it changes your motivation but there's, I know there's more to it than that, but that was one, that's one of the things that whenever I get to the point sometimes when I'm just tired, I just stop and say, okay, why am I doing this? And if I'm doing it for any other reason, for my own gain, for my own you know, uh, applause, whatever, and I just go back and go, no, I'm just doing this for Jesus. All of a sudden that grounds me once again. As believers in Christ, sometimes we need to reground ourselves and I'm doing this for Jesus. And yeah, if nobody appreciates it, that's fine. And, you know, you'd like for them to appreciate it, but if they don't, you know, that's not, that's not why you do it. You're doing it because you're serving one master. He's your master. He's the one that we want to serve. He's the one that we want to live for. Not domineering over those in your charge. When I look at that phrase, I'm, I'm mindful of what Christ said to the disciples. And when that James and John were wanting to sit on the right and left-hand side of Jesus, and, and Jesus says, you know, the Gentiles lord it over, not so with you. That's not what leadership is about. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. It's about servant leadership, about us serving one another, us reaching out to one another. We're going to do it imperfectly, but we, we need to do it still the same. Servant leadership, being examples to the flock. And when the chief, shepherds appear, a chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. I don't know what that is, but it sounds really neat. Unfading crown of glory. And so when I, when I look at that and I, and I look at the, this passage, I think, where, where are we... Not just the elders, but where are we being examples to the flock? Where are we serving one another because we want to, because we're desirous of it? And where, as leaders, are we doing that in a way that will help inspire you to do the same? 
It's very humbling because I realize, wow, there's a lot, a lot I need to grow in. I'm not there yet. I'm not the perfect example I wish I were. I'm just another fellow struggler in life, serving the Lord, done it for 50 years, and I can just say, well, I, I don't know how to, I, I, I don't know everything about ministry. I know a lot. I've had a lot of experience. All I know is we got to just trust him. In the midst of suffering, he's with us. In the midst of suffering, he can give you the peace that passes understanding. How do I know that? Because every one of the Psalms were written by those who suffered and expressed the suffering and trusting of God. The epistles, many of them were written in prisons by those who had been beaten and who were incarcerated and who didn't have the freedoms and were waiting to, to be killed. I think about uh, John Bunyan and Pil Pilgrim's Progress. He wrote that in jail and inspired many people from that. Florence Nightingale, too ill to move from her bed, reorganized the hospitals of England. I think about Louis Pasteur, who, because he was under the, uh, he was semi-paralyzed and under a constant menace of uh, apoplexy. I'm not even sure what that is. He was tireless in his attack on disease. And as Tim Hansel said in his book, You Gotta Keep Dancing, sometimes it seems that when God is about to make preeminent use of a person, he puts him through the fire. The fires of testing that we talked about last time. I read uh, this illustration in 1962. Victor and Mildred Goetzel published a study of 413 people that were famous and exceptionally gifted, and they called uh, the study Cradles of Eminence. And their question is what produced that greatness? And she said in 300, or they said in 392 of the cases, they had to overcome extremely difficult obstacles in life. On the bedroom, on his bedroom, Charles Spurgeon has a plaque with Isaiah 48.10 on it, which says, I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. It is no mean thing to be chosen of God, he wrote. God's choice makes chosen men choice men. We are chosen not in the palace, but in the furnace. In the furnace, beauty is marred, fashion is destroyed, strength melted, glory is consumed. Yet here, eternal love reveals its secrets and declares its choice. I think about us, and I think, who are we? In the grand scheme of thing, 100 years from now, who's going to remember our names? Probably not that many. But our lives are here for a reason. And how we handle suffering is either going to be an inspiration to those around us or not. Depending on the, whether we suffer trusting the Lord. And it doesn't mean that our suffering is going to look like anybody else's. But I can tell you this, that the people that you work with, when your life is going great, they're just kind of looking at you and thinking, you know, great, great for them. They may even be jealous of you. 
But when you go through the fires of suffering and they're thinking, where is your God now? And you're saying, he's right here with me. He's right here beside me. He's never left. When I go through the valley of the shadow, the comfort is, thou art with me. That's the comfort. That's when the peace passes understanding. And that's when the world around us, when they see how we handle our suffering, that's what draws them to Jesus. When they see a peace and they say, I don't have that peace, and I, I don't know where they get that, but I want what they've got. That's the time that people wake up, sit up, pay attention, because they're wondering, is God going to help you now? And he may not take the suffering away from you. My friend a couple of years ago died of stomach cancer. His life was still gone. And yet he had a trust that was inspiring to me. Touched my life, I'll never forget him. How are we? How are we going to handle our suffering? May we, may God, by God's grace, may we be those who live for him and who trust him, not discarding him at those dark moments, but embracing him tightly and closely. And he's designed us for one another. He doesn't want you to face it alone. May we be here for you as well. I pray that we are. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. And we thank you for this passage today. We thank you for Peter's heart. His heart was to help those who are going through suffering. And not only to the congregation, but to the leaders as, as well. That we would all live for you. That we would all trust you. That we would all embrace you. Father, may we be those who also help others because of the suffering that we have faced, that we would bring comfort to one another's lives, that we would comfort with, with the comfort we've been comforted by God. Lord, may our lives not just be for ourselves, may our suffering not just be for us, but may our lives be an example for those around us as well. Help us to suffer well. Help us to suffer in a godly way. Help us to trust you in our suffering that you are there. Help us never to get angry at you and push you away in the midst of our suffering. And if we do, may we always come back to you. May we return. Lord, I thank you for the suffering you bring in our lives. That is hard to pray, Lord. But I thank you because I know you are good and I know that you allow it for a good purpose and that one day we will understand. When we're with you, we will understand. Lord, we admit that we're looking at through a mirror dimly now, but Lord, I pray that we would look with the eyes of faith even though we see dimly that our eyes would be eyes of faith, trusting and looking to you with, with eyes of love, with eyes of reverence, with eyes of respect, with eyes that care and know that you care. And Lord, may we be those who bring healing and comfort and joy to those around us. Lord, we love you and we praise you and we pray these things in Jesus' precious name.
Amen.